The podcast this week is brought to you by Peninsula Filmworks. Shocking stories, crazy stories, moving stories, but mostly authentic stories from the people of Door County. The craftsmen, the artists, the entrepreneurs, the characters. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to bringing you stories from across the county via exclusive video content. Available online at PeninsulaFilmworks.com, DoorCountyPulse.com, and on your social media platform of choice. Find out more at PeninsulaFilmworks.com. Welcome to the Door County Pulse Podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and it's just me this week. We're actually going to do something a little bit different for you. A couple weeks ago, Jackson Parr came to me with an idea. Uh, He called it Stories from the Door, where he read aloud from the Door County Living Magazine archives. We liked it so much that we decided to do a couple more. So this week's episode is going to be a collection of four stories from the door. We're hoping to make this maybe a monthly thing moving forward. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Stories from the Door. Welcome to Stories from the Door. I'm your host, Jackson Parr. Frank Tachowski was a mover and shaker in Sturgeon Bay. Old newspaper archives will tell you that. But they don't mention Tachowski's 40 Thieves, a raucous bunch of Marines. That's the story we have for you today. For more on this story and the rest of Door County Living Magazine's archives, visit DoorCountyPulse.com. Frank Tachowski was on his second term as mayor when appointed to serve as the city's postmaster in 1966, which forced him to give up his mayorship and his day job as a printing salesman at the Door County Advocate. But he continued to be a participant in city affairs and a familiar face in the newspaper whether it be as a chair of the United Way Fund Drive or playing on a winning golf foursome. Tachowski held such roles in the community because he knew how to get things done. It was his specialty at home in Sturgeon Bay, just as it was when he commanded a group of roughneck Marines in a scout and sniper platoon in the Pacific Theater during World War II, a unit that was proudly known as 40 Thieves. Dad never talked about it, so you never asked questions, said Frank's son, Joe who was prompted to learn more about his father's military service after his dad died on September 10th, 2011, at the age of 96. It actually started at his memorial service when a gentleman got up to speak, Joe Tachowski said. That gentleman was Sturgeon Bay native William Parsons, whose eulogy told of meeting Frank in 1955 while both were attending the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Despite Frank being an older, non-traditional student, 18-year-old Parsons and Tachowski talked because both were from Sturgeon Bay. Parsons, who was in naval ROTC at the time, didn't know much about the older man, but became curious one day when he saw a normally stoic Marine sergeant brighten and become animated in Frank's presence. So Parsons asked the sergeant how he knew Frank and got a lesson in showing respect to an American hero. The sergeant described Frank as the bravest man he knew and proceeded to tell a story about Frank leading a platoon in Saipan when a Japanese tank broke through their lines and pinned down the platoon until Frank stopped the tank with a bazooka, which the sergeant said saved his life and every other member of the platoon. Joe Tachowski was surprised to learn that his late father was a World War II hero. He started poking around among his father's belongings, places he never would have dared to look while his father was alive. He found a treasure trove of wartime memorabilia, including more than three years of correspondence between his dad and his mother, Roxy, 
as well as citations for a bronze medal and silver star and platoon rosters. Then I started searching online and found an article from September 1944 from Leatherneck Magazine that talks about this platoon that Dad led, Joe said. The title of that article was Tchaikovsky's Terrors and tells the story of 29-year-old First Lieutenant Frank Tchaikovsky's unorthodox group of battle-tested troops who called their commander Ski. It piqued my interest, he said. I started to locate all the surviving members of the platoon and just wanted to talk to them. It ended up being a series of interviews because the more I learned about the platoon, the more the men wanted to talk to me and felt comfortable talking to me. As he traveled the country to talk to the remaining members of his father's platoon and learn more about the men, his father, and the hardships they endured, he saw a story coming together. People don't understand the horrors of it all that these men had to live through and what they had to sacrifice of their lives and their youth for our victory, he said. Joe Tachowski is a successful Minneapolis-based restaurant consultant, but Joe could feel this story calling to his creative side. It would have been so nice to have known some of this stuff when Dad was alive, so I could ask him pointed questions about different circumstances. That wasn't the case, he said. Thank God the seven guys that were alive were just treasure troves of information. I never really thought about it becoming a book until things started coming together. It has everything you look for. Joe has already submitted one version of the book to St. Martin's Press. At that time, it was written exclusively in the words of the men, because that's what made it riveting to me. But they said oral histories don't sell, so they wanted it written more as a story, more of a narrative. It kind of flummoxed me for a while, Joe said. I finally figured out how to go about writing it, making it into a narrative, but staying true to the words of the men. I've pretty much finished that up and will start to resubmit. We'll see if my take on it is good. If not, there are a couple other venues I'm going to investigate. Joe said one idea he came up with was to start each chapter with a salient quote from the men. I've adapted their memories into narrative and dialogue, trying not to make stuff up, he said. A lot of the dialogue is verbatim from these guys. They remember scenarios and vignettes. It's amazing how ingrained these episodes are for these men. It's kind of got it all. I think it works. I hope other people do. The old men of his father's platoon have gone from being Joe's interview subjects to his friends. Last month, he traveled to Missoula, Montana, the home of Marvin Strombo, who at 93 is the oldest of the three surviving members of Frank Tchaikovsky's platoon. During the Battle of Saipan in 1954, Marvin took a saber and Japanese flag from a dead Japanese officer. In March of this year, Tchaikovsky volunteered to help return the flag to the dead soldier's family by delivering it to the Obon Society at the Columbia River Maritime Museum in Astoria, Oregon. Marvin included a note for the soldier's descendants that read, in part, I have always believed that it did not belong to me. It belonged to you. I pray this flag finds its way home. And if you are reading this, it has. As Joe grew closer to these survivors, he also felt himself coming to a better understanding of his father. It makes you appreciate these men so much more and how difficult it was for them to come home and the nightmares that they struggled with, he said. Dad never slept at night through his whole life. He told me that's because the Japanese were active at night. I remember my mom saying, your dad's asleep, don't touch him. Why? You just didn't. You did what you were told. My 92-year-old Marine in Georgia, Bob Smots, still has nightmares to this day. All of them have nightmares. They hear a sound that sends them back. They smell something that sends them back, and they have nightmares to this day. They're generally life-and-death situations where they wake up in a cold sweat and their heart's racing. And the 40 Thieves part of the story? They were a raucous bunch of Marines, Joe said. 
Stealing was second nature to Marines of that era, and these guys must have been the cream of the crop at what they did. Joe mentions that before serving in the Pacific, his dad was stationed in Iceland with a fellow by the name of Leon Uris, who went on to become a best-selling novelist after the war. His first book, Battle Cry, recounted the stories of the 6th Marine Regiment in the Pacific. He writes about the exploits of a group of thieves in the 6th Marine Regiment and that they were legendary, Joe said. I wrote down some of the exploits that he was talking about, and I would go to my little old guys and say, do you remember anything about stealing an army major's jeep? And they said, it was an army captain's jeep, and we beat the hell out of that thing. In addition to the book, Joe has been telling the Marine story online at 40thievesapon.com. I keep on updating things that occurred in their timeline, he said. Right now, they're still training in Hawaii. They're about to steal a pig from a Hawaiian farmer and have a pig roast. What began as a search for an untold part of his father's life has become a much bigger project for Joe Tachowski. I'm not doing it for me, he said. My dad always maintained that we don't do enough for our veterans. I'd certainly like a good chunk of the proceeds to go to a foundation like Wounded Warrior or some organization that really helps these men and women who put their lives and bodies on the line. Another guy said the disabilities you come home with, the physical disabilities, the loss of an arm or a leg, you can learn to live with. But the mental disabilities, the loss of your soul, can haunt you the rest of your life. This has been a segment of Stories from the Door on Door County Pulse Podcasts. For more on this story and the rest of Door County Living Magazine's archives, visit doorcountypulse.com. A jolly good town is Old Fish Creek, the best on the pike I know. With its back to the rock and its face to the sea where the frolicking breezes blow, as snug as a bug in an old wooden rug, it lies there, embowered in green. You may go where you like on any old pike. No cozier village is seen. That was from Old Peninsula Days by Homer Holland. Perhaps no longer embowered in green as this ditty describes, the old town Fish Creek can be found cozied up to today's shops and condos. However, one can step into the past by taking the official historic tour. If you can keep up with the tour guide, octogenarian Helen Allen, as she spins the old town stories, if she senses her audience is interested, she'll point out where she was born, now Mr. Helsinki's restaurant, where her grandparents lived, now a cottage store by the Whistling Swan and where she had her wedding reception, part of the old Welker's Resort, now a private home on Maple. Her parents, Lester and Amanda Schreiber, and her later brother Ed, who owned and ran the general store, now Fish Creek Market, between 1916 and 1970. One of her stories tells of Dr. Gertrude Howe, the last resident of the Noble House, one of Fish Creek's oldest standing homes. Helen struck up a friendship at the bridge table with Gertrude and described her as a memorable personality and a free spirit who did things women in her time wouldn't think of doing. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Illinois Medical School. She became a pilot and owned her own Cessna while working as a pediatrician in the rugged Upper Peninsula. And she smoked. During Dr. Howe's final years at Scandia Nursing Home, developers started hovering over the then-empty Noble House 
and the members of the town's historical society held their breath concerning its future. The noble family dwelling was one of the last houses in the community that had been at the same location, Highway 42 in Maine, for 123 years, and the historical society wanted to turn it into a museum. Virginia Kinsey, who ran the summertime restaurant with her husband, grew up in the house across the street from Gertrude Howe. When Virginia's friend died in 1995, leaving the noble house unoccupied and sorely in need of repair, she decided it was time to save the historic home. Virginia had founded the Gibraltar Historical Association in 1984 to rescue the town hall from becoming a parking lot, so she marshaled her troops once again to save the noble house. When the caretakers of the noble estate agreed that the land and the house should be preserved, Virginia and her GHA friends let out the breath that they'd been holding in and established the Noble Historic Square Fund. They raised two-thirds of the total cost of $500,000, and the town of Gibraltar raised the rest. The town owned it, and the GHA operated it. The first thing they did was to protect it. The Noble House was registered with both the Wisconsin and the National Register of Historic Places in 1996. Typical of small-town America, the GHA fundraisers ran the gamut from raffles to bake sales and auctions to estate sales. But the most imaginative campaign was Brick by Brick, where a donor bought a brick and had the family name or in memory of embossed on it. Many of these donated bricks form the entrance walk today. Renovation and restoration began immediately. The house was in sad repair and in need of new plaster work, heating, lighting, and plumbing. Decades of wall coverings had to be replaced and wood floors needed sanding. There were home furnishings, clothing, papers, and records dating back to the time of the original owner, Alexander Noble. It seemed to the workers that nothing had ever been thrown away. Noble's blacksmithing tools were still in the garage, and the deed signed by Fish Creek founder Asa Thorpe himself for the vast sum of $260 was discovered in Noble's papers. Also found was a sketch that his daughter, Ula, age 22, used in designing the house that still stands today after the original one burned down in the winter of 1875. Everything was painstakingly sorted, cataloged, and cleaned by the many volunteers with direction from a hired firm specializing in the restoration of historic places. Local co-owner of the Thorpe House Inn, Chris Falk-Peterson, researched and spearheaded the team responsible for the authentic interior decor. The museum proudly opened for business the summer of 1998 on the busiest corner in Fish Creek, where it had survived for so many years. Alexander Noble was one of Fish Creek's first founding fathers, who moved from his native Scotland to Chambers Island in 1856, where he built the first sawmill, turning the island into a busy lumber camp. In 1862, he moved from Fish Creek to raise his family and became, at various times, a blacksmith, postmaster, town chairman, and county board member. All homes before his had been log. The Noble House was the first to be made of lathe and plaster. The original property had several outbuildings where Noble Park is now located. Noble House is a monument to one of the oldest families in Fish Creek, who kept it continuously until Gertrude Howe died. From Alexander Noble's much younger second wife, Maria, to their daughter Nellie, and to Nellie's daughter Gertrude, who cared for her mother in between flying jaunts to and from the Sioux, Salt St. Marie. The records show that Maria and Nellie were both strong women, so one can see where Gertrude inherited her spunk. Maria lived almost 30 years after her husband passed, and in order to pay the taxes and keep the house, she sold much of the additional property Alex had accrued. An individualist in her own right, Nellie went off to school in Illinois, and in 1909, married Donald Howe, an FBI man. When he died in 1954, Nellie returned to the Noble House to live until her death in 1862, and Gertrude maintained the home until she herself retired there in 1968. 
Inside the noble house, you'll find pictures and keepsakes of these women as they step off the pages of history. A history so carefully preserved by the men and women of Fish Creek and the Gibraltar Historical Association who care about their town and its roots. Thanks to them that the town hall survived demolition and the noble house is alive again and welcoming callers. The story of the Alexander Noble House was written for Door County Living Magazine, September 1st, 2005, by Sheila Sabri Saberstein. Of all the barriers to entry in the world of golf, and there are many, intimidation is the cruelest. You stand on that tee box knowing only generally where this tiny rock-like sphere will go. Those ritzy houses out to the right all of a sudden possess more glass windows than any house should. Or how about that oncoming car traffic out to the left, and those increasingly agitated dudes playing behind you? These obstacles all seem so conspicuously placed. Then, there's the beverage cart gal, parking her cart out there in the danger zone. Why does she trust you so much? Hitting the fairway becomes not only the best result, but also the least worse. Yes, golf is intimidating. It's also intense. Now imagine you're a beginner. In no other sport does the idea of taking it slow make more sense than it does in golf, a sport with far more complexities than simplicities. But where exactly does a beginner take it slow? The putting green? The cart path? The driving range? You're not making pars, birdies, and bogeys on the driving range. You're not actually playing golf. All of this could explain one difficult aspect of the golf industry, where do the beginners go? But it could also just as well explain the importance of one spot in Egg Harbor, Stonehenge Golf Course, quite possibly Door County's best course for beginners. Playing the role of the little brother in Door County's family of 11 courses, Stonehenge is a simple nine-hole track. It can stretch to 2,100 yards, but only when it sticks its tummy out. There's nothing intimidating about it. Just one mile inland from where Highway 42 slices through Egg Harbor, its red, wooden welcome sign butts up against County E. Its fourth hole runs along Heritage Lake Road. Everything else is somewhere in the middle of that 40-acre plot. Telephone poles and cherry trees line the property. You might be able to fit 25 cars in its parking lot. If you head there right now, you'll probably find owner John Oswald, greenskeeper Mark Merrill, and maybe one more part-time employee running the show. It gives off this family-owned, family-run vibe, which makes sense since the course was originally created by just one family of the four, the Coles, back in the late 1980s. It also makes sense that for Oswald, families are a major part of Stonehenge's audience. It's the family course up here, Oswald said. You've got the kids out here. You can bring the spouse that doesn't golf as much. People expect to see the kids out there, Nobody grumbles when they are taking six or seven hits just to get to the green. Oswald himself used to play a lot of golf. That was before he left contracting and bought both a golf course and a new job running it. 
He had played Stonehenge in the past because he's attracted to short courses. He's not a big course guy, which is either ironic or telling of his situation, as his course is just a driver and a seven iron away from Door County's longest course, the Orchards. Only about 400 yards separate the fourth green at Stonehenge and the third tee at the Orchards, considered by many to be Door County's best public course. By most metrics, it can be proximity, difficulty, or just its goofy charm. Experienced golfers would say that you can't really say yes to Stonehenge without first saying no to the Orchards. The Orchards is beautiful. It's sprawling. It's unquestionably challenging. For the avid golfer, it's everything you want. It's just not everything to everyone. Inexperienced or less skilled golfers might rightfully not know any better or need any better, which is why Stonehenge fits perfectly just down the street. I don't see us losing any business there, Oswald said. The people who want to play a full-length course, they're going to play those courses. People that think, oh, Stonehenge is a short course. I'll burn right through it. The greens kind of catch you. Stonehenge's fifth hole is a good example. Just 210 yards for a par four? Give me my four iron. Once you reach the eight paces wide avocado-shaped green, you'll know exactly what Oswald's talking about. It's very narrow and long, and the green is sloped on both sides, Oswald continued. People on that one, they'll hit it off to the right of the green and try chipping it back, and then boom, they're over to the left side of the green all of a sudden. They'll go back and forth because there's nothing flat on that one at all. It's the kind of hole on which, by a cord of its length, that one should be able to par, but yet, with an extremely challenging green complex, it's no simple par. Most holes at Stonehenge are like that. They're short, yet tricky. Enter Barbara Smith. She's not a beginner, nor is she an expert. As one of the 21 members at the course, she's played the fifth hole countless times. By her estimate, she plays the course at least four times a week. Now that she and her husband are retired, every time she plays that short yet tricky fifth hole, she's playing an endearing beginner's style of golf. If Smith pars the fifth, she's happy, maybe even thrilled. If she pars any holes at Stonehenge, she's walking away with a smile. That's because she doesn't keep score. Bogies, double bogies, triple bogies, they're not in her lexicon. Nope. Why bother with the tally, she thinks. Smith only counts her pars and the occasional birdie. The same goes for her playing partners. If she makes zero pars on Tuesday, so what? Maybe she'll make three on Thursday. She's the type of golfer made for Stonehenge. I'm not someone who hits it long, so it's a fun course to play, Smith said. You can still make some good shots. A couple of them you can hit from the tee to the green. You've got a chance at at least a par, maybe. We see families out there. Sometimes groups where it's the grandparents, the father, and the children all playing together. It's nice to see the younger generation is starting to learn the game. This younger generation she speaks of is something Stonehenge embraces. Every summer, Peninsula State Park offers two four-day sessions of junior golf school. On the first three days, the juniors receive lessons and an introduction to the game. On the fourth day, the class journeys over to Stonehenge to play the course as a quasi-capstone project. Throughout the rest of the summer, those kids can play for free at both Stonehenge and Peninsula State Park's short course. Oswald calls it a wonderful arrangement. Back to Barbara Smith, though. From Peninsula State Park to Stonehenge is quite ironically the same pilgrimage her father and uncle once made. 
Peninsula State Park, with all of its breathtaking views overlooking Eagle Harbor, is around 6,000 yards. By comparison, it's long, hilly, and not made for the aging senior player. Smith's father and uncle, as their time as golfers tapered off, decided Stonehenge was a better fit for their game and their health. That's when Smith was first introduced to the course. She hasn't found another one that works better for her. Now, 13 years after playing it for the first time, she'll soon make that same introduction to her grandchildren. You know, Smith said to herself, reciting a thought she's certainly had before, that one is turning four, well, he's almost five. We could probably take him out there and see what he could do. Maybe next year. was a course for the everyman, Stonehenge Golf Course, written by Sean Zock for Door County Living Magazine, September 5th, 2017. In what seems like another life, I was a restaurateur. From 1999 until 2003, I owned, with my brother and another friend, Husby's Food and Spirits in Sister Bay. Some of those days were chaotic. Okay, most of those days were chaotic. I was 20 when we took over, and the next four and a half years were a frantic mess of learning how to cook, covering shifts for no-show employees, scrambling to keep the lights on and the coolers operating, and avoiding the vices that have destroyed many a tavern keeper. Those years were self-defining. And as anyone who has spent time working in restaurants will tell you, they stick with you, for better or for worse. To this day, I have a recurring dream of a night gone wildly out of control at at Husby's as I worked the line. A couple of years ago, I jotted it down for the Peninsula Pulse. My recurring kitchen nightmare. I woke up in a panic sweat at 5.41 a.m. It had been a while since it last haunted me, but my kitchen nightmare had returned. It was every worst-case kitchen scenario happening at once. I'm prepping in the kitchen by myself. The other cooks haven't shown up. I'm nowhere close to ready, and we don't open for 20 minutes, but the waitress inexplicably seats and takes orders from several tables. I turn around, and the kitchen is suddenly filled with cooks, and it's a disaster on the line. French fry bags, food scraps, screwed-up dishes are strewn everywhere. In the corner, there's a kid washing dishes, sending through one dish at a time on the rack, bus tubs piling up behind him. I pull a steak off the grill. It's perfect. I plate it, turn around to the pass, and just as I'm setting it down, the steak slips off the plate, behind the cooler, and to the floor. I chuck the plate to the floor, and people look at me like I'm crazy. Like, what's the big deal? Just make another one. I'm the only one who realizes we're hopelessly in the weeds. Everyone else is moving in slow motion, joking, laughing. I can't believe this. I turn again. And all those cooks that were just there, they're suddenly gone. The printer keeps putting out orders. The paper piling up on the floor. That horrible screech of the printer taunting me for hours. I hustle to grab a pan and shuffle past the kitchen's back door. Out the door, I see my fellow cooks on a smoke break. Cracking jokes like it's the dead of winter for a moment. I picture myself dropping the fryers and dousing them in the spent oil. It feels good. I turn, and somehow it's now 2 a.m. 
We clear the restaurant out, but I've still got hours of work left in the kitchen, cleaning up this horrible mess, prepping for tomorrow, and the pile of dishes left by a dishwasher who has just left them there. But more customers walk into the bar through the back door. We kick them out, but my bartender lets others in through the front door. I lose it. I scream at the people that they have to leave. They look at me dumbfounded, like I'm a crazy person. A couple of them decide that I just need a hand, so they try to help clean the kitchen. One grabs a pot full of freshly dropped fryer oil, walks out the back door, and dumps it in the parking lot. I lose it again. I throw some wooden bar stools to the floor, smashing them to pieces. Nobody seems to notice. The growing crowd just continues to order drinks, and my bartenders continue to serve them. I push people out one door, others come in the side door. It's 4 a.m. now. A band starts playing. Where the heck did this band come from? But I wake up, mercifully. I'm sweating. Relieved. <sighs> Just a dream. When I posted a version of this story originally on my blog, I found quickly that I'm not the only one who suffers from a case of restaurant PTSD. A number of fellow restaurant industry workers and alumni shared their dreams in the comments. Some of the best, quote, I was remodeling a house while I owned the Village Cafe. In my dream, I would lead the diners to their table, but before they could sit down, I had to lay the flooring under the table. That's from Jacinda Duffin. Another one, I'm waitressing, alone, at the Sister Bay Bowl. The place is jammed, I'm in the kitchen with the trays full of food, but I can't get to the dining room because somebody nailed the doors shut. And that's from Terry Olson. This one from Rhonda Goudreau, who worked at the Sister Bay Bowl for years. I'm cooking at the bowl, and there are two cooks and ten waitresses, and I went to the freezer in a golf cart, and when I came back to the line, the tickets were taped all over the kitchen because they couldn't hang any more up. Another one from a high school friend named Sean Canavy, who's still in the industry, now working down in Atlanta. I've had weight dreams so bad, I've woken up and vomited. And from Jody Gonzalez, it still makes me break out in a cold sweat. I was waitressing at Al's, the only one on, full dining room. I took all the orders, but it was the Shoreline's menu. The cooks wouldn't make any of my food. stories and more can be found online at doorcountypulse.com. The Peninsula Pulse is available throughout Door County every Friday, so be sure to pick up this week's issue today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.